This morning we have an opportunity to go to his word and begin a new series. And so we're going to, for the next several weeks, be looking at the signs of Christ or the signs that God has given us of himself. And it's pretty interesting. Uh, you know, last, um, our last series that we went through, we were looking at the hand of God uh, through the life of Esther. And so we see through the life of Esther that God's hand seems veiled uh, throughout the whole book, throughout the whole account of Esther. We see God's name's not mentioned. And it's going to be amazing to see how now um, God's hand goes from being the veiled hand of God to the revealed hand of God. As we're going to be walking through the seven signs of Christ, looking at the book of John. And I love the book of John, the way that uh, the Gospel of John opens up as it begins talking about Christ from the very, very beginning. It says that Christ was there in the beginning, that he, before the foundations of the earth were, was laid, Christ was there. And then we see there's this verse in the beginning of the first chapter of John. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So it's as though God, knowing that he has this plan of redemption from before the, the beginning of the earth, before the foundations of the earth was laid, God had this plan to redeem man. And we see throughout the Old Testament, he has continued to show glimpses of what salvation is going to be like and salvation is to come. And now we see God doing the greatest thing ever in the Gospel of John for the word Christ himself becomes flesh and dwells among us so that, there be, so that there will be no doubt that man could know the way to the Father and a way to salvation. And so what we're going to do for the next few weeks is we're going to look at the signs that he has given us, the signs that point us to Christ. Now, here's one thing I want us to be aware of this morning as we begin this series. This is going to be a foundational truth that we need to see throughout this whole series. The truth is that nobody ever glories in the sign. Nobody ever glories in the sign, but they glory in what the sign points to. Let me give you an example. A couple years ago, Sarah and I had the opportunity uh, to go to Arizona. I was there preaching for a, a youth revival, and we got to spend a couple extra days. And while we were there a couple extra days, we decided, hey, let's drive up to the Grand Canyon, and let's do the Grand, T- Grand Canyon trip. So we got in a car, and we drove up to the Grand Canyon, and we got there. And first thing we did, is even before we got to the Grand Canyon, you know what we did? We, got up, we pulled up to the sign, you know, the sign that says Grand Canyon National Park. Well, we got out of the car, and we ran to the sign. We're like, oh, this is really cool. This is a great sign, so let's get our picture by the sign. So we had another car that pulled up later on, uh, came by and took our picture as we stood by the sign. Now, how crazy would it be for us to make all of that travel all the way up to the Grand Canyon, stop at the sign, get a picture with the sign, and then head home? Does anyone ever do that? No, you see, that would be glorying in the sign. You go just for the sign. No, but in reality, what we do is we go, we see the sign, it points to something greater, it allows us to know that we're almost there. And so then, as we did, we pulled up and we went up to the park, and as we had a chance just to stand there before the Grand Canyon, we were amazed. You know, it's places like the Grand Canyon that we see something even greater You know, there are some in this world that would go to the Grand Canyon and they would stand before the Grand Canyon and they would say, wow, this is glorious. And that would be it. But the believer goes to the Grand Canyon and the believer goes to the Grand Canyon and they see even the Grand Canyon itself is just another sign. For that Grand Canyon is actually pointing to someone else, to something else. 
And it's at the point where the believer can go to the edge of the Grand Canyon and they can say to themselves, I cannot make this. And they know the one that did. And that is a moment of worship. Now, there are many visitors to the Grand Canyon every year, and some go and they just miss it. Yes, they're moved by the Grand Canyon, but they don't know what they're moved by or what they're moved for. I think everyone that stands before the Grand Canyon looks at the Grand Canyon and says, I cannot do this. Which is the second truth I want us to see. Is not only does the the sign, we're not supposed to glory in the sign, but the sign points us to something bigger. I want us to see the need to perceive the sign. We're going to see this throughout the series as well. There's a need to perceive the sign. Now, those of you that came to church this morning that drove in your cars, I'm sure whether you came three miles, two miles, half a mile, 18 miles away, on your way here, you passed a myriad of signs. If you just opened your eyes just for a second, you see different signs doing different things. You saw some signs that were giving you warnings. You were seeing signs that were instructing you, slow down, go faster. There were signs that were advertising. There were signs of directing and instructing. But how many of us actually can remember the last sign that you passed before you got here? What was the last sign that you saw before you walked in the door or before you parked your car? Was it a stop sign? Was it a speed limit sign? Was it a do not park here and yet you park there sign? You see, there's a need for us as in this world today. We are bombarded by signs. We are bombarded by by advertising. The world is saying, hey, this is what you need to find happiness. This is what you need to find peace. This is what you need to, to find fulfillment in this life. But then there are other signs that point us directly to God. And it is possible, even though we're surrounded by signs, to miss what they communicate. And I think that's the heart of this message, this series is that my prayer for us is as we walk through these signs is that we would not miss what it is that they're pointing to. That we would not just sittle, sit on the sign itself and say, man, that sign is amazing. That we wouldn't hold up the sign higher than it needs to be. But that what we would do is we would see that each one of these signs points to God and Christ who came to seek and to save those that are lost. And God gives us these signs so that we might believe. So this morning, we're going to begin looking in John chapter 2. So if you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to take it out and turn with us to John chapter 2. If you have a Bible we provided, it's on page 759. And this is the Gospel of John. John was one of the, the guys that God has used to reveal his good news to the world. And so John, just like the others, he takes a little bit different slant on on the way that he um, brings about the collection of the accounts of Jesus' life. But he is basically writing so that we may know God. And so let's look today to see what this sign that God gives us reveals to us about Christ. In John chapter 2, we're going to look in verses 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Canaan in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. 
Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did in Canaan, Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for loving us. And Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through your word. Father, that there is no doubt that we can know you and we know the way because you have shown us the way. So Father, I pray today that you would meet us. Father, I pray today that you would speak to us. But Father, I also just pray that you would remove all of the blinders that are in our own hearts and in our own minds so that we can hear you today. Father, instruct us in the ways that we can go. Encourage us, correct us, change us for your sake and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this morning, we're going to spend just a few moments looking at this, the Canaan and the, the wedding at Cana and what it reveals. And it's amazing to me the way that the Lord reveals himself. It's always amazing to me that the way the Lord works. For, you know, you think like we have the, the, the word of God and we can open it up and we can see God always working in his creation. And we almost try in some ways, I think, to come to the word of God and try to find patterns of the ways that God works. But then you come to a passage like this. And it seems as though the pattern that God uses to show himself over and over and over again is, is changed. And so God always is at work. Let us be reminded of that. But it may not always be the way that he works. It may not be the way that we always expect. And so we come to this passage, this occasion of a wedding. And what I want us to see is, are three things here. First, I want us to see Jesus' places. This passage is revealing to us about Christ and his character or who he is. I want us to see what it reveals first about his place. Jesus is very, very early on in his ministry. He has been baptized. He be, has begun calling his disciples to himself, and they have begun following him. And now we see he's attending a wedding. His mother is there, and Jesus is there. And we see that Jesus is really cool. What I think about this, and this is just a sidebar, is that by the simple fact of Jesus attending a wedding... We don't see that Jesus, the, the Messiah, the one that has come, who is God in the flesh, we don't see that Jesus is only spending time with the religious elite. We don't see Jesus spending time with those that have lots of money. We don't see Jesus spending time with those that were famous in his day. We see that Jesus is spending time doing things that you and I do in our lives. So Jesus is about the everyday person. Jesus is about doing everyday things. But Jesus uses everyday things to bring glory to himself. And so though we look at our own lives sometimes and we think to ourselves, man, my life's not very special. My life's not huge. My life's not big. I'm not doing something so important that the world is noticing. I want us to realize today that Jesus is in those everyday things. 
that Jesus is in your life working things to bring glory unto himself. And though you may not be on MTV, though you may not be on ESPN, God is still working greatly in your life. And Jesus is for everybody. And so Jesus is here at this wedding feast. And he's hanging out with people. And what's amazing to me is weddings back in the day were week-long celebrations. They were times where the family and community came together to enjoy fellowship and to provide honor for the two that became one. They were huge, elaborate feasts. And I also like the tie-in from this passage to what we last left off on Esther. For Esther, we learned last week, or two weeks ago, that God is in the celebrations, that God wants us to celebrate, that God wants us to enjoy life. And we see here again that Jesus himself is enjoying life. He is celebrating with this couple and with his family and with his friends. But we see that on this occasion, that this celebration begins to be in jeopardy. And what's most amazing about this even more is that on this occasion, as they're celebrating, as it's about to go into crisis mode, we see that not everyone's aware of the crisis that is to come, but we see that Mary is aware. She sees the impending shame that is about to happen. She sees that that, that the wine has run out. And, And for the Jewish people of that day, that was a huge huge faux pas. That was the the worst thing that could possibly happen. You have all of these guests at your home and you're providing for them and all of a sudden you run out of wine. That was like utter shame. And so what does she do? She's sensing the situation, sensing the, the seriousness of the situation. She goes and she approaches Jesus and she asks him to intercede. Now the crazy thing is, is that crazy things happen at weddings. How many of you guys have ever been to a wedding where crazy things happen? Like it's supposed to be this day that is planned for. It's the day that, that people that are very um, type A have like every moment of their day planned out. And they have like, maybe they have a binder that they walk through getting ready for their wedding and, or they have different things. I don't know if your wedding was like that, but my wedding was a little bit crazy like that as well in a good way. Very, very good way. See, for us, our wedding was a crazy time too. You know how like when, when people get ready to get married or when they're before they meet the one that they're supposed to marry, how they dream about that day? Like girls maybe dream about the, the person that they're going to marry or they dream about the dress that they're going to wear or they dream about the place where they're going to get married. Well, for me, I dreamt a lot about all of that stuff, not necessarily all of those things, but what was on my heart and mind as I sat back and thought about getting married is I couldn't wait for the reception. Like, that's what I, I thought. I didn't, I didn't care who I got married to. I didn't care where I got married. I just wanted to go and party. Like, I wanted to dance. Like, that was my thing. Like, I was a guy that loved to cut a rug and do all that other stuff. So as I thought and as I prepared for the wedding, our wedding, I was all consumed with the dance floor. Like, I wanted to know what the dance floor was made of. I wanted to know what kind of speakers the DJ was going to use. I wanted to know the playlist. Like, people had their binders for, like, the wedding. I had a binder for, like, the playlist, okay? It was, like, it was going to be this song, and it's going to be doing this, and I've got these moves to go along with this song, and I've got... So it was cool. That was what it was all about. But then the day of our wedding arrived, 
Well, the day before our wedding arrived, and we had made this, these big plans to get married outside. Now, we were getting married outside in Michigan. Now, in Michigan, in the summertime, in June, July, I got married in July, not June. Uh, in July, uh, it could be like 900 degrees, or it could be 32 degrees, kind of like it is here in Delaware. So it was, it was really just up to the Lord to see what was going to happen. And the day before, we were supposed to have everyone meet up um, at the place where we were getting married. And it was actually Sarah's aunt's backyard. And in Sarah's aunt's backyard, we were going to have it all set up with the beautiful chairs and all this great things. Well, the day before, it rained. And so we couldn't have the rehearsal at, the, at our house, so we had to go to the church. And so we had the rehearsal at the church, and that threw everything else off because we were supposed to set up the chairs that evening. Well, we could set up the chairs because Sarah's aunt wouldn't let us set up the chairs because it would put holes in her grass, and we weren't going to do that, so we had to wait till the next morning. So it was it's almost as though one thing led to another and a bigger, bigger snowball, bigger, bigger snowball. I won't go into the boring details, but I will tell you this. We were supposed to get married at 4.30 in the afternoon. And there's a picture of me with a watch where I'm putting on my, my tuxedo and all of that and my actual ascot. I had an ascot. It was really cool. And I was putting all that stuff on. And you can see in my watch that it was 435. So we're supposed to get married at 430. It's 435 and I'm just getting dressed. So needless to say, we were a little bit late and crisis was abounding. And that was just the beginning. For soon after, on our way over, after we got married, we kissed and all that other good things. We had the fanfare. We got in the limousine. We're headed over to the place where we're supposed to have the reception. And I get word that our DJ is not there. So I'm like, I can deal with all that other stuff. I can deal with being late. I can deal with setting up chairs in the hot and all that other stuff. I can deal with all that. But the DJ is not there. So I had a meltdown in the car on the way there. It was just staring at me. I'm freaking out. I'm like, we don't have DJ. How, what am I going to dance to? I've already got this cool tux on. People need to see me rocking it, cutting a rug. And they're not going to get to see any of that stuff because the DJ is not there. And I'm like, get the DJ on the phone. We're going to get this DJ on the phone. He's going to get there. Well, what turns out, the DJ thought our wedding was the next day. So my world is in coming crashing down, and that was the crisis of my life at that moment. So in some ways, I can really get into this story. I can see, I can feel the feelings of Mary. Like, I know she's, like, freaking out. But, you know, throughout all of that, as I had time to reflect many, many years later, I realized that the Lord was teaching me a lesson through all that. What I desired was for myself. Through that whole process, that crisis, what I was hoping for and what I was dreaming of and all of the things I desired in our wedding had nothing to do with God. Like that was all about me. Like isn't a wedding between two believers a beautiful thing? Isn't it an amazing thing where God takes two separate people and he joins them together as one and makes them a beautiful picture to the world that displays his glory? And so what I was doing was taking this beautiful picture that God was making and I was making it about me. It wasn't, there were things in our wedding that that did allow us to, to bring glory to God. But after all, it was he that brought us together. And wasn't our wedding a time for him to shine? not me. That was a lesson that I supremely learned and was challenged by. And still to this day, now I can look back and say, it was okay that we didn't have the playlist and all the other things, but my, the Lord did provide in allowing our friends that loved us and cared for us and knew how important it was. The Lord provided in a different way 
For you see, what they did is they all went home. Like they, went, they went to the reception like, there's no DJ here. So our friends scrambled, and guess what they did? They got together their, their boom boxes, and they got together their, their tapes and their CDs. So we didn't have like iPods where you had like cool playlists on it. So they got that together, and guess who the DJs were of our wedding? My friends. And it was so cool. It was so meaningful and all this other stuff. Even the whole time, I'm like, ah, oh, I want a DJ. God was good. But I want us to see, and even in that crisis of my own life and the crisis that we see here, God is all over our crises. God is in, he is over, he's above, he's working through, he has a plan. Crises in our lives do not catch God off guard. He's always been there, but crises in our lives always provides an opportunity for Christ to reveal himself. And this is what we see here. Mary comes to Jesus and says, they have no wine. Now imagine just for a moment, like you're Mary, okay, Mary, the mother of Jesus, you know in your heart and mind, you know that Jesus was in your belly, in your womb, and you gave birth to him, and you know that that was miraculous. You know that the Holy Spirit came upon you one night, and the next thing you know, you're pregnant. So you know this is a miraculous thing, and you're holding that, you're pondering that in your heart for 30-some years. You're like waiting for the day that Jesus is going to step up and say, hey, I'm the Messiah, I'm here. So you're holding that. And finally... You have this moment where you see, you know that Jesus is powerful enough to do it. You know that he can come and he can turn the water into wine. He can do whatever he wants to because he's God. You know that in your heart. And you come to Jesus and you say, Jesus, do something. For if you don't, this wedding is going to be in shambles. I'm sure for those 30 years, she must have just been waiting. And waiting and waiting and waiting. In some ways for personal vindication, personal just to say, you know, all of this that I did that no one could see, now they can see. She must have just been waiting. And you know, I I wonder how many times we selfishly approach God wanting to act, wanting him to act on our behalf for our glory. Do we ever do that? Like, do we ever go to God and we say, God, intercede in this situation. I know you're powerful enough, but do it for me. Do it for me. I have to think that in some ways that's how Mary is approaching Jesus. But I want us to see how Jesus responds to her. For you know, over centuries, the church has wrongfully placed importance on Mary. The church at times has seen Mary as some exalted figure or somehow they place more significance on her or her life than other people. You know, even in such a way that, that, that Mary in some way becomes the mediator between man and Christ. But what we see here is a very interesting is how, how Jesus responds. And what we, what we can see here and we can learn is that Jesus not, does not bend to the will of his mother. Jesus' will is not bent to his mother. Though she comes to him with his request, his will is not bent to that. Though he does, we see here, we, he does intercede, and he does take care of this wine issue. We see in Jesus' response here, woman, does this? what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus is emphatically telling his mother, that he operates under the direction of his heavenly father. 
Like, that's why he's come. Like, he, he, he may intercede, he may not intercede, but he's teaching his mother, and he's, he's letting her be reminded today that he is operating underneath the direction of his father, that that's, his purpose has come, and that he is here to carry out the plans of God. The ultimate authority that is, is God's alone over our lives, over Christ's life. God is the one who has ultimate authority. And we see here in Jesus' response, he's not dis- disrespecting his mother, but he's reminding her of his place. He's reminding her that he has come to be in submission to God, and he also is reminding her of his purpose, the hour. The hour is coming where this life that has been given me will be given up for the ransom of sinful man. And so that's this discourse that's taking place. She comes with a request, and Jesus responds by saying, I'm here to do my Father's will, for I've come for this hour that is coming. But I love Mary's response. Look with me at Mary's response here. Verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, Mary is the mother of Jesus, and if you have a mother, anything like my mother, like she comes to you with a request, and you answer her like this, what's your mom going to respond? She's like, I'm your mother. I'm your, you do what I tell you to do. I gave you life, and I can take you out, right? I've given you, and I can take it away. Anyone's mom respond like that sometimes? Okay, well, we can see that, yeah, I see that hand. She could have done that. She could have come to him and said, now, Jesus, you know, I had great pain in childbirth and all this other stuff. Now, you need to do this for me. But she, she doesn't go that route. But we see she takes on the heart of a true follower of Christ. You see, she's in the process of life, and she sees this situation but she, and she responds in a proper way. So she sees the situation. She responds in a proper way by going to the one that can actually do something about it. And then when she goes and she makes her request known, then instead of continuing to stand there and demand that Jesus do things the way that she wants them done, she submits and trusts in Christ. Then what we see is she fades out of the picture. So she comes in, she sees the situation, she makes her request known, and then she submits and she lets go, and then she fades out of the picture. Submitting and trusting, once we make a request known, is huge. For this, this biblical account is not a story about the love a son has for a mom or the obedience a son has for, to a mom. It's much bigger. See, Jesus' place is to submit to the Father and carry out the plans that he has. The second thing that we can see here is that Jesus has power. We can see Jesus has power in beginning in verse 6 through, through verse 10. We can look here and we see that Jesus has the power through this revealed sign. And there, in this sign, there's so much symbolism. For God had set this as the time and the occasion that was going to begin revealing Jesus' purpose and his power to the world. It's at this wedding where two become one. But it's also at an opportunity where man is continually reminded of a separation from God. For we see here that at this wedding feast, prior to the wedding feast, there were these water jugs or jars of water that had to be used. The people that came that day to, to celebrate in that wedding had to actually take the time to wash their hands. They had to go through this ceremonial cleansing to be reminding of themselves that they are sinful people. 
And if they're going to be among the people of God and in the presence of God, they have got to get cleaned. And so the people there celebrating were reminded, whether or not they actually gave a scent to that or a mental um, notion of that, they were doing that. So they had to wash themselves to be there. And then they set the jugs aside. And Jesus, being very perceptive, knowing what he's about to do, looks over and he says, look at these jars. I'm going to give these jars new purpose, these jugs, new meaning, new significance. That's what he does. He calls the servants over. And he's going to use those jars that that remind humanity of their brokenness. He's going to use them in a way to show that fellowship can be restored. So six, six stone jars used for washing. He now asks them to take them, fill them up with water as much as they can, all the way to the brim. And we see that he does something miraculous. He changes water into wine. Now, there's something symbolic in this. There's something needful that we need to see in this passage. There's significance in it. For it's not the first time in the Bible that we see... um, one water being changed from one state to another state or being one, one chemical makeup to another. For we, we look back in the Old Testament, we see in the process of God's people being delivered from Egypt, we see Moses, God, through Moses, turning the water into blood. And so that's a reminder of deliverance. But now we see salvation is coming. And what we're going to see is God taking through Jesus, taking water and turning into wine. And later on, what we're going to see is, is wine is going to become the symbol for blood that is going to be shed for forgiveness of our sins. See the amazement of this sign as we see these servants who actually go and they're the ones filling up these jugs or jars with water. They know what is inside of these jugs. They put water into it. But then when they take the glass and give it to the master, they've dipped it in and it comes out, it comes out wine. And what's amazing about this is it's not cheap wine. It's not grape juice. It is the good stuff. It's the stuff that makes men merry. It's the good stuff. And so they go and they give it to the bridegroom. The bridegroom tastes it, or they give it to the master. And the master says, this is amazing stuff. This is different. This is different than what is done before. For no one does this. No one goes and gives, gives the good stuff first and then follows up with the best. No, usually they start out with the good stuff and they slowly, as people become more merry, they go and they get the cheaper and cheaper and cheaper stuff. It's totally a reminder of the world. For the world and the way the world operates, it always is presenting us as people with things that promise but are always lacking. Like the world has so many promises for us, but they never can measure up. But then we see Jesus, we see God giving us some promises that always, always measure up, that never, ever disappoints. The world says and tells us, this is as good as it gets. That's what the world tells us. Go for all the gusto in life right now. Get what you can because this is as good as it gets. And God tells us, you haven't even seen anything yet. It only gets better. Jesus says to us, those that believe, this is as bad as it's going to be. And then he follows up with promises of of being with him in heaven and promises of taking away our sin and promises of a relationship restored. 
Jesus has the power to do the miraculous. We need to know this and we need to believe this. And I know sometimes it's hard to come to the word of God and we see these miraculous things taking place and we think that the God of the Bible is not the God of today. And I want you to know that the God of the Bible is still the same God today, that God does the miraculous. Nothing is impossible with our God. I mean, even if you think about the chemical change that had to take place in this miracle, water, H2O, hydrogen and oxygen, being changed in the transforming of time into wine. Now, that's a total different chemical change that has to take place that no one has the ability to do except for God. And we see that he does this on this day. And why does he do this? Because he wants to reveal himself to the world. Now, when I was younger, I, I remember one day, I, I was young in my faith, I was following God, and, and I remember sitting down at the table, and I hated peas. Like, I hated peas. And it seems like every other day we had peas for dinner. And I remember one night as we're eating the peas, and I remember just thinking, I bowed my head, and I was just like, God, I know you can, I, I read, I, you help people walk on water, you part the Red Sea, you loaves and fishes, you did all these amazing things in the Bible. God, can you just right now, if I open my eyes, can you take my peas and can you turn them into ice cream? Like, could you just do that? And I remember praying and I earnestly prayed and I earnestly had faith. I believed that God could take my peas and turn them into, I believed. And so I'm praying, God, please, please, please turn my peas into ice cream. I'll eat them. Every day I'll eat them. I remember peeking a little bit. I'm like, uh, still peace. Pray, 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 pray. Asking God, asking God, asking God. And finally, I opened my eyes, and guess what? The peas were still there. So why is it, God, that you answer and you, and you reveal yourself, and you turn water into wine, but you don't change my peas into ice cream? God, why? Like, how many of us want to know that, right? Like, God, why do you some days, why, why do sometimes you step in and you save the day, and sometimes you leave us? Seemingly leave us. But you see, what I've come to understand too, and we're going to answer this question more. We're not going to unpack it fully this morning. So hang on to that question because we're going to continue to come back to it. But today what I want us to see is that even in my prayers to God to change my peas into ice cream, I didn't give it back to him. Trust him. Like, I asked him to do something, so I was, in some ways, asking God to bend his will to my will, and I didn't do the other part that we see Mary's doing. I didn't give it back to him and say, God, here, I want you to please, God, take my peas and turn them into ice cream, but I trust you with the results. But see, what I didn't see is that God was still giving me a sign in those peas. For God was showing me in those peas that he cared for me. Like he was provide. like who made those peas grow? Did the farmer make those peas grow? No. The farmer, farmer planted the seeds, farmer did everything he could, but who made those peas grow? God. Who, who made sure that those peas, my parents had enough money to buy those peas so they could get to my plate? God. Who was providing for all of my needs? God. Who is going to use those peas to give me nourishment so I can continue glorifying God with my life? God. So we see that Jesus has the power here, but he does and reveals his power for his own glory so that he may be made much of, not so that we may be made much of. So the last thing I want us to see real quickly in verse 11 is Jesus' praise. We see here in this passage, 
just how many of the other attenders or how many other people who were participants in this miracle, in this sign, how they responded. See, the master, the master knew and he was able to partake and he drank of this great wine. He was absolutely amazed, but he had no idea that it came from the hand of Jesus. He had no idea that Jesus was there, that the Messiah had come, and the Messiah had done this. So he was completely oblivious. He was amazed, but he wasn't chained. We see the bridegroom. We see the attendees. We see all of those people, as they sat around and they participated in drinking of that wine, they benefited from the sign, but none of them were aware of its significance. None of them perceived the sign, though they had had opportunity to participate. We also can look at the servants. The servants, they were the ones that, that knew that that once was water, but now it was wine. They knew that. And we don't see how they responded. For we must become aware that the whole purpose of this sign was not for the bridegroom, was not for the master, was not for the servants, was not for Jesus' mother, but it was for the disciples. The whole purpose of this sign God working, not in big, miraculous ways so that all the world is being drawn attention to, but this is all happening for these disciples that had, that had given their life to follow Christ, who didn't really know who this guy was. They're very young in their faith. They're very young in their following. As they're following this man, Jesus, they had an opportunity to witness this sign. And we see here in verse 11 how they responded. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So what is the purpose of this first sign? So that God could reveal his glory and so that the disciples may believe. This was done. Even though many didn't perceive it, this was done so that those that began to have a heart for following the Lord could see that he was who he says he who he's going to say he is so they would know that the man that they're going to follow and the man that they will eventually give their lives for is worthy so as we end today the question that i have for you is what signs has god already given you what more of a sign do you need before you will believe in him like, do you need him to make the sky turn red? Do you need him to change your car into a beamer? Do you need him, before you believe, to take the loved one that you know right now that is hurting and dying? Do you need him to step in and save their life before you will believe? Do you need him to take you in your wretched state right now and change you before you will believe? Or has he done enough already to show us that he is who he says he is? Will you believe in him? The second thing I want us to see just as we come to a close is those of us that are believers, those of us that have trusted in the Lord, man, I want want you to be aware the need to continually make your request known to the Lord. Like be Mary. Like as you're perceiving the world that is out there, as you're perceiving the needs and the crisis in the world, go to God because he's powerful enough to intercede. Like if he's powerful enough to change water into wine, he's powerful enough to change and to heal your hurting neighbors. 
Like he's powerful enough to change those that are hurting right now in our world. Those that have just lost their job. He's powerful enough to jump in and save the day. He is powerful enough. But would we like Mary make sure that we are going to Jesus with the needs, making our requests known to the Lord? But then secondly, not only making those requests known because you're not gonna bend the will of the Lord, but instead make your request known and then release it so that the Lord may do what the Lord is going to do so that he may be glorified. That's why we make our requests known. God, I pray that you be with my hurting neighbors. Every single day I see my neighbors hurting and we are in my own life, we are praying for a specific set of our neighbors. We're asking God to intercede. We're asking God to bring about healing. We're asking God so that they may see him. But we got to release it back to him and say, in your time, in your way, change them, mold them, shape them so that they may come unto you. Wait upon the Lord for our strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. I think that's a beautiful song that we sang today and it's the truth of the application of this passage. Make your request known, release it to the Lord, and allow him to answer.